Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of FF Plus, your spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. I'm your host, Aaron White, and this week I have three new films to share with you. Here on FF Plus, the format is very straightforward. I cover what I liked and didn't like, and I give you a recommendation about whether I think the film is worth your time and money. I'll keep it simple, short, and spoiler-free. First up is Apollo 10 and a Half, A Space Age Childhood, coming to Netflix. It stars Milo Coy, Lee Eddy, Bill Wise, Natalie Lamoro, Josh Wiggins, Sam Chipman, Jessica Bryn Cohen, Daniel Gilbot, Zachary Levi, Glenn Powell, and Jack Black. It's written and directed by Richard Linkletter. What's it about? A man narrates stories of his life as a 10-year-old boy in 1969 Houston weaving tales of nostalgia with a fantastical account of a journey to the moon. So if you've seen any sort of marketing for this film, then you'll know that this is an animated film. This kind of harkens back to Richard Linkletter's previous work in the animated realm, reminiscent of something like Waking Life. The animated technique is quite interesting, and I would say one of the biggest draws of this movie altogether. It's a mixture of live action and rotoscoping and actual animation. For one thing, they did a lot of green screen work and then they animated in objects into the scenes. So it's really fascinating to see in action. And I think it's very beautiful and it's very fitting of the time period that is being depicted for this particular story. It starts off with this really interesting setup, kind of as mentioned there in the synopsis. There's a young man. He is approached by NASA. And the reason that they need his help is because they built their lunar module too small and they need him to secretly fly to the moon because they don't have any astronauts that will fit in it. It's kind of ridiculous. It's kind of silly. And I think it speaks to the nature of dreaming that a 10-year-old boy would definitely have if he was into space and and obsessed with all things galactic in nature. And so why not do it that way? That part of the story, it it actually isn't a huge plot device, I would say. Like the majority of this really feels like a documentary almost. We aren't ever privy to the name, I can't recall at least, of the kid in question. But I think we're supposed to understand and believe that that's really Richard Linkletter. So this is semi-biographical in that he's pulling from his own memories. And really, that's what it feels like, is this beautifully nostalgic trip through Linkletter's memories of the late 60s. We see a child, you know, and we go through his whole life, essentially, uh, over the course of, like, say, a year. We see what he did, what he did in the summer, visits to the local swimming pool, his favorite snacks, the the playing baseball with friends. We get to kind of see through the lens of this 10-year-old child or AKA Linkletter's memories, what he could think of, you know, with regards to politics, cultural and sports events. We got to know family members and their interactions with each other's And we got to really understand why he has this amazement with space exploration and why and how he became 
a budding cinephile. There's a great scene in this where he's trying to explain 2001, A Space Odyssey, to a fellow kid on the baseball field. And I think that the title of this film is also a pretty clear kind of reference to 2001, A Space Odyssey. You know, Apollo 10 and a half, colon, A Space Age Childhood. Very similar kind of way that they're written out. The music in this is outstanding. It brings me back to my own early teen years and elementary days when I would have Cool 95 on the radio and it was the Golden Oldies. And that's what we called them at the time. It was music from the 60s and 70s. This film is completely chock full of great songs that you just immediately start singing along to when they come on. And it reminded me of my own you know, adventures in the summer as, you know, a young preteen as well. And while my dreams probably didn't quite line up exactly with this kid, I too, you know, at one point wanted to be an astronaut. I think a lot of kids do. And it was easy to relate to that, seeing it depicted through those childlike eyes. It's an hour and a half long, great length for this. I think if it had gone much longer, it might have begun to feel more meandering than it does because like I said this whole going to the moon plot line it comes and it goes throughout the film and there's large sections that we don't even do it Jack Black is fantastic by the way he does the job of narrating this film from that kid's perspective and again large parts of this film are just him narrating memories that we're seeing played out on the screen and depicted and then we'll kind of switch to actual character interaction and plot. But that, to me, that seems like a lesser focus of it overall. But I really liked it. I loved how that worked. I think it is definitely a mixed collection of fantasy and documentary. And I really, really enjoyed it. It's an interesting one because there's not like one humongous big idea that I'm going to take away from this. There's not something singular about it that makes it this unique and powerful work. I just found it to be captivating, and I watched it with a huge smile on my face. I was full of joy the whole time, and I would gladly watch it again, even without it being something that hooks you on a narrative level. And so that it was just really unique in that way. And Patrick and I are going to talk about it in our full episode coming this week so you'll get more about our thoughts and kind of how we related to the film when we do that so yeah apollo 10 and a half a space age childhood coming to netflix will be streaming on april 1st and it gets a hearty huge two thumbs up from me i love it i say definitely make plans to watch this one it's family friendly you can watch it with your kids as well 90 minutes just get in there enjoy it i hope that it gains some recognition at the end of the year with regards to being an animated film, because this is the kind of unique animated films that I love to see get nominated for awards and remembered over more generic studio types that they just pump dozens of out every single year. Next is The Contractor, coming from Paramount Pictures and previously STX. It stars Chris Pine, Ben Foster, Jillian Jacobs, Eddie Marsan, Florian Montanao, and Kiefer Sutherland. It is directed by Tariq Saleh, making his English-language film debut, and it is written by J.P. Davis. What's it about? Special Forces Sergeant James Harper, who was involuntary discharged from the Army and cut off from his pension. 
is in debt, out of options, and desperate to provide for his family, so he contracts with a private underground military force. When the very first assignment goes awry, the elite soldier finds himself hunted and on the run, caught in a dangerous conspiracy and fighting to stay alive long enough to get home and uncover the true motives of those who betrayed him. I'll say it right up front. You guys, we've seen this film a million times, it feels like, and in a million different very tiny variation of ways. This spends the first 10 minutes or so setting up the character of James Harper, played by Chris Pine, the main character, as a traditional good family man, but very clearly 100% committed to his job in the Army. It's what he knows, it's what he's good at, it's what he loves. He's nursing a long-time knee injury, but he's always training for the next big mission, and when he gets discharged, he feels extremely slighted, and we kind of quickly move, too quickly in my opinion, into this area where all of a sudden we are learning about these great family debts that they have, and so he's like, I'm going to go off and get contract work to provide for the family, and the wife's like, no, I don't want you to do that. It just really kind of rocket fires us to this point where we are supposed to believe that he's in a dire need and has to take this step, this kind of dangerous and very uncertain step of joining up with a crew of people that he doesn't know and working for people he doesn't know, making a whole lot of money to do something that may or may not be illegal and putting his life on the line in order to do that. Like a lot of films of this kind, it definitely tries at one point or another to make some kind of commentary on how military folks, especially those who are in the army or those who are more specifically frontline fighters, how they feel like they don't have a value to society once they are out and they don't know what to do. This guy doesn't even try. And that's one frustration I definitely have with it. There's no effort put in at all. It's not like he tries to get a job and be satisfied. He just doesn't believe that he can be. And so he immediately defaults to this. And it's really to progress the plot, I'm sure, and to keep this movie just moving along quickly. But the lack of what I felt was an accurate and kind of fair storytelling buildup and character development definitely hurt it in the long run. He does get reunited with a previous unit mate named Mike that's played by Ben Foster. And they ultimately go off on this mission, right? Mission goes poorly. Chris Pine's character, James Harper, ends up on the run. And I enjoyed that part. It's decently thrilling while he's on the move. He begins to feel betrayed. You see him going through that, mentally trying to process it and having to think on his feet and trying to figure out what this conspiracy is all about and how the heck he's going to get out of it. That's what I'm saying. We've seen this before. There are a couple of great kind of spy-like scenes in this. There's a, an infiltration and an extraction kind of moment that I thought worked really well. Those special ops kind of scenes are a highlight for me. There are a couple of gunfights. They're pretty generic and really not that exciting, to be honest, but they get the job done. It's a fine movie in a lot of ways. There's not a lot to say about it that is great, and there's not a lot about it that is terrible either. There is a slightly dramatic slowdown in the middle of the film. When he's on the run, there's a couple of different characters that he interacts with where it's ramped up and we kind of stop. 
I'm really mixed on that because it adds a little bit of depth to the character, but not a ton. And I almost would have just preferred, I think, that it just kept going at a high energy pace. Like, stay thrilling all the way through. That would have been what I liked. Maybe you'll prefer the slowed down moments. So that's kind of a your mileage may vary type of situation. I also wish I cared more about the big deal at the center of the plot. Like, once the reason for him being betrayed kind of comes into the light, I, I was let down by that. And there's really no resolution to it in the end either. Ben Foster's character also feels underdeveloped to me. And it was a little bit harder to get connected to him. But despite that, so there are not nearly enough moments, in my opinion, with Chris Pine and Ben Foster together. That is where this shines. Just like in Hell or High Water, that was the draw for me, was bringing those two together. I thought, okay, they are great. And they were great when they had the opportunity. There's a couple of moments where there's a nice emotionally charged scene and there is definitely some chemistry on display. And that connection that they so clearly developed while working on Hell or High Water together. And those scenes are outstanding. That's when this is at its best. And I just wish there'd been more of that. And maybe a little more action and a little bit higher pace. But it's fine. Again, I enjoyed it. I like military movies like this, spy movies like this. Absolutely forgettable. I will remember nothing about it and nothing about the plot just a couple days from now. I'll barely remember that I've even seen it. It's that kind of movie. And it also feels kind of longer than it was, which is a little bit strange. Usually movies that are shorter, it's a positive kind of thing. But this one, it felt long, even though it was short, which I got to say, maybe is a little bit of a knock. So yeah, I'm very middle of the road for me. This is kind of what we've been getting routinely in this genre. And I would love for... Hollywood to knock a couple of these out of the park, but we'll see. Maybe it's just not going to happen. For this one, it will be in theaters on digital and on demand on April the 1st. And then eventually it will be coming to Paramount plus streaming, but I don't have a date for that. It's quite a ways down the road as far as I know. But I recommend it for people who like this kind of film. If you're like me and you watch all of these, regardless of reviews and regardless of quality, I think you'll have a fine time with it. <laughs> and I just don't expect the world. Last up is Morbius from Sony Pictures, starring Jared Leto, Matt Smith, Adria Arjona, Jared Harris, Al Madrigal, and Tyrese Gibson. It is directed by Daniel Espinoza, it is written by Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless and based on the Marvel Comics character Morbius the Living Vampire. What's it about? Biochemist Michael Morbius tries to cure himself of a rare blood disease, but when his experiment goes wrong, he inadvertently infects himself with a form of vampirism instead. So yes, it's real, guys and gals. I am just as shocked as you were. I was sitting down in my press screening, waiting for the screen to come on. And right up until it did, I'm not going to lie, I was still kind of half expecting to get Rickrolled. This movie has been delayed so many times. And it's a big, long running joke now uh, out there on film Twitter, out there in the film critic world and circles. Everybody kind of just thinks this movie is not real. And so I was kind of glad to see that it actually was. I've actually been looking forward to this. I'm not going to lie. First and foremost, I like Jared Leto. Now, that's 
middle of the road thing for people. Like you either do or you don't. If you're not a Leto fan, if you didn't like the way in which Leto portrayed his character, let's say in Blade Runner 2049, I don't think you're really going to like this movie or this portrayal by Leto at least either. Okay. So you're going into it with your own biases. Don't expect those to be overridden by this movie. It's Jared Leto. Okay. It is. And he is what you get, what you get, right? I like what I get. So I enjoyed that. Biggest strengths of this for me, the visuals have to be one, especially when they are flying or teleporting around the movement as a vampire, pretty sick looking. And there's quite a bit of it. Really, really enjoyed that. And there's some occasional slow motion used, and I thought it was pretty effective as well. Not too silly and not overly done by any means. It works really great, especially in contrast to when they're flying and teleporting because they're moving so fast at like these superhuman speeds as this kind of airy cloud of like you know dispossessed physical self and so the slowdown works as a humongous like opposite to that vampires always a draw for me like vampire movies hard for me not to like vampire movies so i go in kind of with the baseline of enjoyment right there and this is no different there matt smith big highlight he is having a blast being ridiculous in this film he's the closest thing this movie gets to campy it never goes full camp it's not like venom or let there be carnage in that way it really does kind of try to be much more serious than those two films but there are times when matt smith is just hamming it up and boy does he look like he is having fun and therefore we have fun watching him have fun adria arjona not sure that i'm familiar with her she looks somewhat familiar to me but she plays a character named martine bancroft who is a fellow doctor and friend, co-worker uh, of Michael Morbius, an eventual kind of uh, love interest as well. I liked her performance a lot, and I enjoyed every time that she was on the screen. And I was actually left interested in seeing how she might be used in the future, even if the she didn't really get much depth to her character this time around, because there's really just not any there. Sorry. That's really one of the big things with this is a lack of depth. So the movie's 90 minutes flat. Check the watch right when it ended, and literally we're talking like 90 minutes. That's prior to any kind of credits. That's like Venom, Let There Be Carnage. I think it's even maybe a little shorter. They're right there at the same length. And you can compare that to the MCU and DCEU, which are typically two hours, two and a half hours long, sometimes even three hours long. This moves so much faster. So the pacing, I feel like, is pretty great, but there is a clear shortcut in storytelling depth that is going on here. This is an origin story, so take it or leave it. You know, you get what you get, guys. You know what to expect here. There's a little bit of setup for the future, but it's just a person dealing with getting their power for the first time, wrestling with how to go about either keeping it or getting rid of it, and then how to go about living with it in the future so we can have more movies and stories with them. It largely plays out as kind of like a 1v1 between a hero and a villain, both somewhat in an ethical gray space at times, other times pretty clearly good versus bad. There's not a lot of larger stakes, though, haha, <laughs> pun intended, in play. 
And so it, it is kind of ground level type stuff. I thought that that was okay for me uh, because it was 90 minutes. <laughs> and so it's a different kind of film. Would I have enjoyed a two hour long, very serious MCU type of movie with Morbius? Maybe. But this movie isn't really built with that sort of humor in mind that the typical MCU brings. And I don't know that I would have wanted that. It, it at least leans into slightly more of its horror self, but it's not scary very often. And, and I wish it would have gone harder into that, honestly. I mean, I'm talking like the darkness level of like a kind of a Zack Snyder's Justice League, at least tonally. But I, I really wish they would have maybe not even gone PG-13. I, I wanted this to be a straight-up vampire horror movie. That would have been ideal, but that's not quite what we get. But again, at least it's not stupid and silly and overly campy. The editing early on in the film left a little bit to be desired. It's that origin story kind of problem. They're trying to be in the present and then go to backstory and show you people as kids and then in the future and then back to the back past. And, you know, they're trying to put these things together to bring character development. And it, it kind of worked. But you just never have enough time to feel like you're getting attached to those characters in the past before you're thrown back to the future and things like that. So it's a mixed bag for me with regards to the story overall. Some may call it boring. I was entertained the whole time and enjoyed it. But to be honest, that was because of the action, not because of the story. So I would lean toward agreeing that the story is fairly generic and kind of blasé. The look of the vampire faces is another mixed thing for me. I really dig the way in which the makeup looks and they have this like echolocation ability. You can see it visually that their ears like have these little like almost like gills pop up that when they're utilizing the echolocation. I enjoyed that visual flourish and I like the way they look when they're in full vampire mode. However, there are times when they're just talking and having conversations and they're in their vampire faces and that was dumb and just did not work. Very distracting for me. So I like the vampire faces when they're supposed to be like angry and fighting. I don't like them when they're just chilling and talking. There are two post-credit scenes. They come pretty quickly after the first credit hits for the record. And there are there is no scene at the very end of the movie. So once you've seen these first two, you can get up and you can leave with no problem. You don't have to sit all the way to the end. I was pretty interested in where this might go. In fact, I was left more intrigued by the possibilities for the future than I was in love with what I'd just seen when the movie ended. The two post-credit scenes basically undid the goodwill and left me annoyed and less interested in where this was going to go. All I'm going to tell you is, look, if you've seen any of the marketing for this, you'll know they are kind of angling for some sort of a multiverse type of inclusion when we're talking you have MCU characters and Sony characters and there's crossover things that could happen if you've seen Spider-Man you understand that as well and Venom let there be carnage i mean that's that's where these kind of these properties are in flux because of being kind of duly owned at this point it fell super flat for me i thought it was very lame and i was just annoyed again i really didn't like it at all and it, it kind of made me walk out going man no please no you could do so much more with this character let's go a different direction so i don't know 
I'm bummed that it seems to be a different place that they're headed. We'll see how it turns out, of course. One other negative here is just Tyrese and Al Madrigal are a couple of cops, a couple of federal agents that show up throughout the film. They provide minor comic relief as they're trying to track down a murderer and talking to Michael Morbius. They are completely inconsequential to the story. And you could have had this movie with that. Just pretend that there are no police. The movie's attempts to make it grounded in the real world and make it feel like it's a possibility that these characters could exist in a big city and that this is how the cops would handle it. It's so lackluster in effort that it, I would almost have preferred they just pretend that those things don't exist instead of trying to ground it in reality because it just didn't work. They kind of left it somewhere in the middle. Last but not least, I just want to address real quick, critics or fans, anybody expecting and wanting a movie to fail, I, I just don't understand this. Like, I don't care. If you want a movie to fail, sit at home. When people feel like they're actively almost happy or giggling and almost excited that something was so bad, it just drives me bonkers. I don't understand it. I go into every movie, even ones that I expect to be bad, hoping against hope that I'm going to be surprised and I'm going to enjoy it. And maybe that's why I do enjoy most movies. You know, if you look at my ratings, you're going to typically see that three stars and up is the vast majority. It takes a lot for me to really check out. And to not like a film. I just get the sense that there's a lot of people who want this movie to be bad. Or they've seen the trailers, they think it's going to be bad, and so they go into it and they're just kind of there to laugh at it. And I just don't understand that. Like, why go see it? Why, why even waste your time and money, right? Why is that how you react to art? <laughs> Whatever. To each their own, I guess. I can't dictate how other people interact, but... It definitely affects me negatively or makes me kind of frustrated to overhear it, you know, when I'm in a theater and I hear other people seemingly almost in enjoyment, almost like they're taking happiness out of joking about how bad something was. When I leave a movie, I didn't like it, guys. I'm sad. I'm disappointed. I'm let down. And it's just a very different vibe and mood than I get from some others. And I don't understand it. And so I encourage you to try and flip that if that's you. Try and enjoy every movie. You know, try to, try to hope for the best. Try to find that silver lining in everything you see instead of focusing in on all of the things that maybe you would wish could be a little bit different. Anyway, with that being said, Morbius will be in theaters on April the 1st. Am I feeling it? I say, if you've been excited about this movie, go see it. It looks good on a big screen. It's fun. It's 90 minutes. You're in, you're out, and you can move on. Otherwise, you know what? It'll be perfectly fine if you don't and you wait to rent it when it comes out on home video. I don't think it's going to blow your socks off in a theater either. So kind of up to you in that regard. I, I find it worth seeing, though, overall, some way or another. Well, that's it for this week on FF+. Plus. As always, I hope that I've given you some information that will help your decision-making. If you do see these films, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter, at FeelinFilm in the Feel and Film Facebook discussion group, on Repod Community, or any other numerous place on social media. All of those links are always in the show notes to each and every episode. If you have some time, please take it and go rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Give us that five stars and a couple of nice words. It helps us out a lot. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching 
and keep feeling film.